You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. Uh, David, I trust you are well. I'm well. I trust our listeners are well, Giles. We've got a great interview this week and uh, lots going on in the electricity world as usual. Well, um, the Australian electricity market operator did predict that there will be some records tumbling in spring and they certainly have. Um We've seen solar account for all of demand in the South Australian grid um, at least twice in the last couple of weeks. We've seen um, just this last Sunday for a four-hour period, just the local network, the uh, South Australian um, power network, just the the local part of the grid, the distributed network, um, have negative demand over four hours. Essentially, it was sort of exporting to the transmission part of the network. Um, which was um, uh, quite extraordinary. We've seen in the month of October, South Australia reach at least 100% renewables on all but two days of the month. I think they averaged about 73% um, over the month. And just remember, there's no hydro in this mix. This is just wind and solar. This is just quite extraordinary for a gigawatt scale grid. But, so, but Giles, if, if we included hydro and looked across the whole NEM, uh, we could get to 35% for October. I mean, who'd have thought that a few years ago? Well, look, that's right. I mean, uh, Angus Taylor came into the energy um, energy minister's portfolio uh, three years ago, just over three years ago. So there was too much wind and solar on the grid, but it's effectively doubled um, in his time here, thanks largely to policies which he didn't like and he tried to kill, but um, have nevertheless prospered and thrived. So yes, 35%, about 28% wind and solar across the whole network. Um, and if and, we add in uh, projects that are already committed, never mind the New South Wales roadmap uh, and all the wonderful things it's going to bring, but if we add in the stuff that's already happening, you know, been signed up for, been built, still been partly commissioned, you can you could add in another ten percent to that. So that'll get you to forty five percent, I reckon, within three years. And in the background, we've got the reason why uh, operational demand is negative in South Australia and prices are, are negative pretty much every day during spring, uh, particularly south of the Victorian. Uh, border, south of New South Wales border, and that's this uh, extra two gigawatts or more of uh, behind the meter stuff that just keeps on coming and, and making Australia an absolute world leader uh, uh, in, in this energy transition. And, you know, countries from all, experts from all over the world coming to a study how we do it. Well, exactly. And just before we introduce our guest, which is actually on that very topic that um, you have just um, alluded to, it's just fascinating to see all the green manufacturing opportunities being talked about. I mean, look, we've had Andrew Forrest, um, we've talked about this previously, his plan for electrolyzers and sort of solar module factories. Let's wait and see if that happens. But we've seen the big refineries and the smelters move to renewables. Um, there's even talk, as Mike Cannon-Brooks confirmed in our episode last week, of maybe even a Tesla Gigafactory happening in Australia. I mean, there's just so much talk. Everyone's just looking to the future. We've seen some interesting sort of hydrogen um, proposals. I'm not talking about Andrew Forrest this time. I'm talking about South Australia had seven big proposals. They're very excited about their export hub. So really quite exciting. And and and, and just on the, um, I'm just going to mention one thing about the new, uh, Australian uh, technology roadmap. 
and the emissions issue and there's look at there's an awful lot happening around cop 26 and we're not going to really buy into that here but they did put out their emissions trajectory and extraordinarily as you suggest um with the projects that we've got in the pipeline we're probably going to get to 45 percent renewables in the next few years and here you have the federal government actually dialing in an assumption on a base case scenario that we're actually going to get to 69% renewables in the main grid by 2030. So far from sending a wrecking ball to the economy, it's actually probably going to be a big boost to the economy, which is wonderful. Now, onto that subject that you alluded to, David, why don't you introduce the next guest, seeing as how you did the interview? Well, thank you, Giles. Our guest uh, t- uh, today is uh, Paul Denham, who's a senior researcher at the National Renewable Energy Lab. Uh, He was on Energy Insiders a few years ago uh, when I probably uh, didn't know quite as as well what questions to ask. And I was interested to talk this time uh, because uh, National Renewable Energy Lab, which is, as we say in the interview, is an absolutely fantastic resource for, for people in the industry. Uh, uh, has been doing this uh, uh, future of storage study, which is a multi-year study of how much energy storage is needed in the United States and what durations, et cetera, et cetera. And so without further ado, here's Paul. Thank you. It's glad to be back. (laughs) Uh, Now, you've been uh, working hard, I think, on uh, NREL's uh, storage futures study, which is, uh, as uh, to read the blurb, a multi-year uh, uh, you know, team effort at trying to uh, understand the f- fundamental role of energy storage in maintaining a resilient, flexible grid through to 2050. Um, could you uh, tell us a little bit about, I guess, the, the study in general and, and, and uh, what you've learnt or learnt from it so far? Sure. Well, I, I think you, you summed it up rather well, but the goal of this study, and so to start, NREL has involved, been involved with many of these kind of future studies. We've done these wind vision studies and geovision studies, hydrovision studies. We've done a set of solar future studies of various sorts to look at the, the technology evolution, how it's going to contribute to the grid. And this is our first storage future study. And it's a little different because, of course, storage does not provide energy, and so it doesn't provide it's it's not a source of energy like sol- the sun and, and wind. It is an enabling technologies, enabling technology. It allows greater utilization of solar and wind resources by shifting those resources in time, making them a little bit more flexible and providing a number of other benefits to the grid. So the basic idea is to look at the state of the solar technology, the state of the storage technologies, their cost evolution, where they might be going in the future, and what are some of the different pathways of storage deployment how much might be deployed on roof or in in people's homes, how much might be centrally deployed, what are the roles of storage in enabling uh, solar and wind. So it's really kind of a multifaceted uh, set of reports. And so unlike these other big studies, it's not a single report. We're really more targeting these individual things, maybe maybe make it a little bit more digestible. So if you're interested in a specific topic, you don't have to wade through a 200 page report. You can find a single thing that says, oh, I'm I'm interested in what the future of distributed storage might be. And, And we've got a report for that. Yeah, I must say, I uh, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as wading. I, I end up swimming through uh, a series of these reports, each of which are, are reasonably lengthy, and, and that's a good thing because there's a lot of uh, useful information in them. 
Now, I should point out for our listeners that this uh, study and, and Paul's expertise is, of course, in the United States, which is an electricity market that in energy terms is about 19 times the size of Australia at, I think, something like 3,800 terawatt hours and, and consists of a series of loosely interconnected grids. I think it's fair to say that, that each have their own uh, 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 pricing and energy and power procurement uh, methodologies. Is that uh, is a very general description, Paul? Have I said that roughly right? Yes. Uh, the main thing is we have three interconnections. So we have the eastern interconnection um, that goes up into Canada, the western interconnection also going up in, into Canada, and then Texas uh, is its own interconnection. And there are very few uh, connections between them, a few small DC ties, but we essentially have three grids. And that's, of course, ignoring Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, that's right. Now, if we look at the storage study, it investigated a number of topics and uh, which are interesting to me. Um, I thought we might just uh, talk about uh, duration to start with. Uh, there's a discussion because storage, particularly, I suppose, batteries uh, can perform a whole range of value services of the value stack as i think we, we all call it uh and and it can provide um services that range from milliseconds or even you know in 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 in, in virtual inertia up up to longer durations could you describe roughly the results of the study in terms of the need and i think you talk about four phases in terms of the need for different durations can can we do it all with just four hour batteries or is the do we do we need shorter and longer durations as well sure that's one of the things that's so unique about storage relative to other technologies right it has this duration component to it which is a little weird so one of the things that we did in the solar in the storage futures report apologies for keep saying solar futures i've worked on both studies and the the solar futures uh study just came out it's also a great one so let me put a plug in for that but returning to the the storage futures work um again one of the unique things about storage is this this duration component that solar and wind do not have. And so when you're thinking about building a battery, if you're a utility or developing storage technologies, if you are into new chemistry, this question keeps coming up. Well, should I build a one hour battery, a five hour battery? What's the right thing? And so when we looked kind of historically at what got built here in the United States, especially, um, you know, looking back long enough, of course, we had lots of pump storage. And Pump storage is a, a really interesting technology. I, I think there are a lot of opportunities and people sometimes dismiss the future of pump storage in, in the US at least. Um, I know, you know there's a number of folks in Australia working on this topic and there's been some really interesting reports out of Australia about the potential opportunities for pump storage. But when we look at kind of the last 10 to 20 years in the US, we haven't seen a whole lot of pump storage development. And what, what happened was in kind of the early 2000s was lithium ion batteries had gotten to the point where they were cost competitive for short duration application. So something, if you could build a battery that doesn't require five hours or even two hours, maybe if you could find an application that only requires 30 minutes, um, that might be cost competitive. And indeed, that's where storage for the provision of uh, frequency regulation services uh, came in. Now, here in the US, we've got you know, dozens of different terms for these services. So what I'm talking about when I talk about frequency regulation is not the extremely short kind of sub-second response. That's in the US, we often call that frequency response, whereas frequency regulation is kind of the second-to-second -second variability. And sorry for the weird terminology, uh, 
that was here before I was. But anyway, so there are markets for frequency regulation in every single ISO RTO market. So here in the US, we have both independent system operators and regional transmission organizations. They're both the same thing. They're the wholesale market operator. And in all of those market regions in the US, which covers about three quarters of the US, there are wholesale markets for frequency regulation. And battery developers saw the fact that, hey, looking at those prices, we can compete. And since I only need a battery that can provide energy for 15 minutes or 30 minutes, that was a great entry point. So we saw several hundred megawatts of new batteries deployed in the US over the last 10 years or so. Um, to, to respond to the market opportunities for frequency regulation. So that's the entry point. That's where we've seen the early developments of storage. And as we move forward, as those markets get saturated, we look to new markets. And the next big one that's happening right now is with capacity. And that's essentially, uh, what are we gonna do to replace fossil fueled peaking capacity such as combustion turbines and can batteries do that? And there's been increasing deployments of batteries with about four hours of capacity. Here in the US, we're a summer peaking system and our peak demand periods, they last about two to four hours, 4 p.m. to 6, 7, 8 p.m. the heat of the day. And batteries are providing a great role for um, those, those opportunities. So we haven't moved into the longer duration applications of you know, eight, 12 hours. We're still in kind of the early phases of the less than an hour batteries in some location, and then maybe four hour batteries and others to provide the speaking capacity. So uh, I guess uh, just uh, there's a number of points that arise immediately. And, and I want to get on to seasonal stuff, uh, you know, as the renewable energy penetration, BRE, we call it wind and solar uh, increases, but just staying with uh, what uh, you term uh, and what and the correct term is the diurnal, the daily sort of uh, market. Uh, I, I guess the immediate question is, can you do that? How competitive? I mean, gas in the United States, for instance, is is low cost relative to Australia uh, and low cost relative to most of the rest of the world, I think, at the moment. Um, and yet you're still finding in the modelling that you do that batteries can be competitive with gas in this daily uh, power market. Yeah. So interestingly enough, even with cheap natural gas, uh, storage can be competitive. And the main reason is because you're not really competing against the variable cost of operation. You're really competing against the capacity cost. So our peaking generators in the US, good rule of thumb in terms of their capacity factors about 10%. So which means that, well, they're operating about 10% of the time uh, and not operating about 90% of the time. So their you know, levelized cost of energy is relatively high. Uh, Ken, you're trying to recover all those costs in a relatively short number of hours. So it really is about the capital costs of, of these resources that you're trying to replace. And then, of course, on top of that, the variable costs. So that's why storage can be cost competitive, um, even with cheap natural gas prices. It's, it's a capacity asset with the additional benefit of providing grid flexibility. And there's a bunch of other cool stuff that you can do with batteries as well um, to, to make a little bit more money and offset those cost differences. But it really is about what's, the, what's that upfront cost comparison. That's, that's, the, that's the starting point to compare these peaking batteries with peaking combustion turbines. And, and I want to come back uh, a little bit to that uh, further on, but I just for the moment, I just want to continue with this uh, temporal uh, issue. As the renewable energy uh, penetration goes up uh, and starts to get to longer and uh, bigger and bigger shares of the total energy supplied over a year, 
like let's talk 70, 80, even 90%, which is what's implied by decarbonisation and, and getting that the United States is, for all the talk, is, is nowhere near on a path to even doing that. Uh, it, it becomes the case, doesn't it, that, you know, wind and solar production are by their nature much more variable uh, and that therefore the uh, both the short-term gaps between supply and demand are going to, the, the variability of those is going to increase. But it will also be the case, or at least in Australia it is, that in, uh, in, in good solar and wind conditions, say spring and low demand, that we'll have a lot more energy, a lot of spillage uh, without longer term storage. And equally in our winter, what we will see is a big reduction in uh, production from renewable energy. Uh, and on the stuff that I've done myself and seen others do uh, when demand is high, because we're close to a winter peak, that in fact, no amount of four hour batteries, uh, or at least not without wasting them for most of the year, <laughs> long, long question, um, uh, will, will be enough. You know, you'll run out every, you, you, you'll fill them up, half fill them up during the day and then use them pretty quickly the next day so that some longer term storage is, is required. Does your modelling end up showing that? Yeah, I, I think you've described it pretty well. I mean, there's a few subtle nuances in terms of differences um, as we go through this transition, right? You don't, I don't think you have a kind of hard transition from four hours to, to seasonal storage. Well, one of the fun things that we consistently see is how uh, you can actually you know, kind of delay the onset of those problems by adding more solar. As you add solar, it kind of clips the peak in the first part of the day, and then you can actually extend the ability of something like four hours uh, to provide peaking capacity. But of course, you, you, that only goes so far. We are not a winter peaking system in most of the US, but we're really close in many locations. And if you see even modest amounts of electrification of heating, we could see much of the US flip over to a winter peak. And that is concerning um, because we in the US have world-class solar resources. I mean, you know, outside of Chile and a few other places, our, our solar resources are just fantastic, but uh, you know, they tend not to be that great in the winter. So as we transition to winter peaks, uh, we've got that challenge. And of course, you know, we do have um, variability of wind. It's, it's not, you know, we, we have limited ability to rely on wind during all, all periods of, of the year. So yeah, we do see this transition. You, you do as much as you can with four hour storage. When you kind of saturate that, you can maybe go to eight, 10, 12 hour storage. But, but really the problem is, okay, in that 90% scenario where you start to see the significant seasonal mismatch, uh, you're completely saturated in the winter or in the, in the spring. You just don't need any more energy in, in the spring. Um, and you're short in the late summer and, and during some winter days. Some kind of seasonal storage, something to address that seasonal mismatch. Boy, that's gonna be, that's gonna be great. If we can get there cost effectively, I, I think that that seasonal mismatch, um, we've, we've done some other work talking about, you know, what are the big, how do you simplify the big challenges associated with 100% with decarbonization, especially with renewables? And we often reframe them as the balance challenge and the inverter challenge. And the balance challenge is exactly that. How do we deal with the fact that we've got this seasonal mismatch um, between renewable energy supply and demand? So yeah, seasonal storage, uh, let's, let's hope we get uh, continued progress on those technologies. Uh, those phrases are, are music uh, to my ears, particularly the inverter mismatch, which if, uh, is another favourite topic of mine this year. And if we get a chance, I want to come back to it. But I've got to get through some other stuff first. Uh, now, we talked a little bit about uh, uh, batteries versus gas and, and noted that in the, that's a, a capital cost uh, issue. 
Uh, another debate that, as you said, Australia's done a lot of great work, particularly started by uh, uh, Blakers, Professor Blakers at Australian National University on on how much pumped hydro storage locations there are. Um, but when I looked into the cost modelling in this study, uh, it seemed to show that even up, uh, if you look forward on battery costs coming down, and I think we'd all agree that there's, you know, pumped hydro costs can't come down that much. There's just no uh, real uh, uh, learning rate. Um, that batteries are still going to be competitive even out to eight and perhaps even 10 hours. That's That's something that I think... Uh, most Australians wouldn't intuitively accept. Yeah, I, I continue to be, look, this goes back to what we have learned about renewables in general, right? So I work at a research lab and we love to talk about new technologies. Um, and I always get in a little bit of trouble when I say things like that. But when you look at a wind turbine and when you look at a solar cell, they haven't really changed that much in a long time. We're still kind of using the same types of technologies um, that we've had for a decade plus, you know, silicon solar cells. I mean, sure, CADTEL, but CADTEL has been a, a while, around for a while. So when we look at something like batteries, uh, lithium ion has a long ways to go. And yeah, I, I want there to be advanced technologies, and I certainly hope um, that the costs continue to, to, to come down. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're continually impressed with the the development in in lithium ion battery technologies and we've got a ways to go before we hit the floor on on those prices yeah that's right so it's it's likely that that's going to in in the modeling that you do and i, I might even come back to that in a minute because that's interesting as well that in fact uh there's not going to be that much uh on the cost inputs that you use that the modeling there are inputs to the modeling this pumped hydro role is going to be relatively limited out to 2050. Well, we have some hope to pump storage. So um, the main things around pump storage are taking advantage of some existing sites. So you, you do something like a closed loop system where you're, you know, old abandoned mine or something. Um, and certainly improvements in the round trip efficiency can help. I mean, you are still going to have significant capital costs associated with, I mean, you're digging a big hole in the ground. But um, I wouldn't completely give up on it. You know, I, I have a soft spot for pump storage because when I started studying energy storage 20 years ago, pump storage it was just about it. Um, so I spent a lot of my time thinking about are there ways that we can get more pump storage on the system? So I, I have not given up on pump storage and opportunities here in the US. Um, maybe we'll never have another renaissance, but I think there's some unique opportunities. And again, if, if we look at applications where you, you want 12, 14 hours of storage, pump storage, uh, you know, it, it, it may still have some opportunities. So, uh, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not going to give up on it yet. No, 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 I'm not giving up on it. Uh, and uh, I guess it does depend on the cost inputs. And I think uh, just from memory that the, the cost input that you use roughly is about you is three and a half million a megawatt uh, of capital cost for, for pumped hydro, which is a bit higher than some of the numbers that we've seen here in Australia. But uh, it, it's just so I guess the modelling results do depend on that. Um, Paul, another thing that I saw when I looked at the model was in the various scenarios that you developed, you developed that, that there was this dichotomy which interested me between when you have lots of uh, uh, solar, you tend to want more storage. When you have lots of wind, you tend to want more transmission. 
maybe you could just uh, uh, talk about that just for a second. And I want to, co- if you could cover off in, in, the, in, in the least cost modeling that you do, uh, do, do we end up with more wind or solar in the United States or is it balanced? How, how does that mix work? So that's a really fun question to think about. So, so again, I've been doing this for a long time. And when we started, of course, wind got there faster than solar, right? So when I started uh, doing modeling of, of national power systems 15 years ago or, or so, wind was really dominating a lot of these cases unless you know, we, unless we used solar numbers that we thought were maybe a little bit overly aggressive, but then of course, uh, solar achieved those numbers. So it used to be uh, solar or wind beating out solar. And then, then we had, we see solar uh, potentially beating out wind because of the cross of the batteries coming back. And now if we look at winter peaking systems, maybe wind is the new winter. I'd say it's way too early to tell. The good news, of course, is that you know it is a somewhat balanced case. I mean, no matter what we do, we always get significant amounts of wind and solar. Um, so I think there's huge opportunities um, for both. But in terms of your question, the storage versus transmission thing, it really comes down to wind uh, needs transmission uh, to get its to deliver it to load centers. So if you can't really build a lot of transmission, you're going to be limited by the amount of wind you you can build, but if you can build transmission wind, wind uh, has the nice uh, feature that it's less variable than solar, right? I mean, it doesn't have this kind of inherent diurnal cycle. And gosh, there are places in the US now where you're achieving 50% capacity factors on wind power plants. I mean, just the math works out that, I mean, if you've got that kind of high capacity factor, you're getting a lot of, you're, you're delivering a lot of energy and you don't need uh, a lot of storage when you've got that kind of delivery. But with solar, you've you really do get limited by the fact that the sun doesn't shine during the peak and it's not the fact that the sun doesn't shine at night there's less demand at night so and there's typically a fair amount of wind at night so that's a pretty good synergy the problem is the sun doesn't shine at 6 or 7 p.m that's when our summer peaks are and that's right right when your solar output is dropping like a rock so you really do want and again we were we were talking about that four hour storage that's when you want that little bit of two three four hour storage to shift that solar to hit that demand peak so those are kind of the trade-offs between the, the the resources Yes, it's very interesting because uh, we have this debate about how much transmission investment we should. Australia has a very long and thinly connected grid, and uh, a lot of our uh, uh, wind and resources, the best ones, and even uh, are not located that close to to load. So this is an ongoing, very live discussion in in what's the, the least cost system. And I must say, we've got a great modeler, the AEMO, Australian Electricity Market Organisation, that, that, that does fantastic modelling on that. But not to get away, another one of the debates is um, uh, that uh, you address in this uh, uh, storage future summary is kind of the distributed versus the uh, on-grid um, balance. And I guess what, I, if I miss, I've misread the numbers, I think you ended up concluded that the distributed uh, sort of solar thing was as low as eight gigawatts. You know, again, Australia, Australia is 5% of the United States in terms of total energy, but we've already got 15 gigawatts of uh, of uh, rooftop behind the meter solar and, and growing at two gigawatts a year. It just interests me that those, those conclusions. I think that, so I'd have to look at those numbers. So I didn't work on that part. I, I think that may have been the storage connected part of the oh, solar. Right. Yeah, it probably um, was. 
So, okay, here's, here's the fun part about modeling behind the meter stuff, which is one of the reasons I don't do it, just because it's just too hard. Um, you have to model people, right? You have to model human behavior, and you have to model the weird electricity rate structures and particularly how they're going to evolve. Now, I don't know how, how electricity rate structures in Australia work, but I can tell you my electricity rate is flat. I pay the same amount for electricity in a hot summer day that I do on a on a spring evening at 4 a.m. where my local utility is curtailing wind because they have so much, right? So the, that would translate to a marginal price of zero, right? So I, I pay the same amount for electricity when the marginal price of zero is zero and the marginal price of, of or marginal price of electricity is zero or the marginal price of electricity is is you know a dollar per kilowatt hour. Um, many U.S. Uh, rates are that way. So, how are you going to model the transition to distributed solar and storage when there's no price differentiation? What's what's the value of storage in a system with with flat rates? Well, it's, it's zero basically, except for some resilience, and those are important. But that's the problem with trying to figure out what's going to happen with behind the meter storage. It's it's the human element as well as how the policy is going to evolve to get better pricing because i mean that's a whole separate conversation but there's one place where we need a lot of work in the u.s to to improve our rate structures for for retail rates yeah well i don't know that it's the rate structure we've had an endless discussion about rate structures here but in australia what happens is that about 50 percent of the household bill uh, is wires and poles cost. So essentially, when you uh, put solar in behind the meter, you can uh, consume it within the house. Uh, then you uh, are arbitraging out that wires and poles cost. You just don't pay it. Uh, and uh, similarly, we compare that. So we just look at a net present value model, essentially, that looks at the cost of the uh, rooftop solar and maybe with a battery. Uh, and looks at how much avoided energy costs you you uh, you have. I mean, that's there are more the more bells and whistles to it than that, but yeah. that's essentially what happens. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, and, and, and I know also that in fact uh, what we've established is that for some reason uh, balance like roof in the United States it costs a lot more to install solar. There's a lot more installation costs than the, than the actual panels relative to other countries like even Europe and certainly Australia where we've got a very efficient industry. I didn't want to get too far down that track, but another yeah. thing that uh, I thought we could just touch on was the United States. Uh, in Australia, we're moving to an inverter-based uh, kind of grid, in, in my opinion. Not everyone agrees with that. Uh, in the United States, it's probably a long, long way away for that. But what what do you see as the potential for uh, grid forming inverters and batteries, uh, you know, what we would call a virtual synchronous machine, to actually end up running the grids in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an effective manner in, in the USA? Well, we've already hit instantaneous penetrations of inverter-based resources, you know, that are that are large, um, and this isn't just Hawaii. I mean, the best example is Texas, where on moderate, you know, temperature spring evenings when the wind's blowing like crazy in West Texas, they hit very high instantaneous, instantaneous penetration. So um, we're already there in terms of, of un, you know, trying to understand the problem. And, and it, it's just going to continue. I mean, no, there's no slowing down uh, that. We've, we've seen high instantaneous penetration rates in California. 
of, of solar and wind, as well as the Southwest Power Pool, which is kind of the, the independent system operator in the middle part of the country, Oklahoma, Kansas, um, that part. So, so we're already seeing you know, large uh, amounts of, of inverter-based resources. I mean, we're not anywhere near 100%, but we're certainly, you know, high you know, 50 plus percent in some in some periods so um we're, we're gonna get there so uh, the real question is you know what are we doing about it and that's really you know the international thing I mean, that's one of the fun things about this job is you know i look at what's going on in australia what's going on in ireland and we're all kind of coming to the same conclusions in terms of yeah this is this is doable um there aren't really any fundamental engineering um you know limitations it's just good engineering practices and and um I don't want to say go slow because obviously addressing climate change is not something that we can slow down, um, but you know, go carefully and, and make sure that um, we don't make any huge mistakes. Because what we don't need is we don't need a situation where renewables do cause problems. We've got enough people out there saying renewables cause problems, and we've got enough instances where there was a problem caused by something other than renewables that people blame on renewables uh, to deal with. We certainly don't need a an actual renewables induced problem. Yeah, I agree with all of that, Paul. Although I will say the renewables in, uh, industry probably just has to be learnt like it is in, house, in households where everything that happens is my fault and I've, I've learned <laughs> to accept that <laughs> without any problem. Uh, now, I just want to talk about the modelling technology. Uh, it's always a question of how deep to go in, 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 these, uh, in these podcasts because a lot of people don't really care about model, how models are done. But I think in, in NREL users... Uh, mainly something uh, redders is it uh, uh, for installing new capacity deciding what capacity to, to be installed what technology and and I see you also using the Australian developed Plexos now I guess is that for reliability type studies yeah so okay when you're when you're studying the power grid if you're a utility for instance or academic researchers you're generally doing a four-step process, and this is fairly common in in the U.S. We often call this called inter, something called integrated resource planning, and we do something similar to that at national labs. And I know read plenty of papers from Australia and elsewhere that that do the same type of thing. And so it's a four-step process. The first of one is called capacity expansion, and that's where you figure out which mix of resources, so how many wind turbines, how many solar cells do I install. Then you do operational simulation, so you do kind of hour to hour simulations to see if you can kind of balance the supply and demand reliably and then you do power flow calculations to make sure that the transmission system works reliably and then you do a separate uh, resource adequacy calculation you do a bunch of you know monte carlo simulations and weather years to see you know if if, if you have a really bad weather year uh, are, are things going to go south so that's kind of the four-step process that we do and on the first side you you mentioned the the reads model that is our kind of flagship capacity expansion model um and that is uh open source you can download a copy um and then yeah you also mentioned plexos um i i've heard it uh, i guess it is properly called plexos but i'm as an american we in our group we call it plexos um and that's my kind of bread and butter i those do those kind of supply demand balancing and we do a lot of reliability checks with that model as well they don't do everything but um those are two of the main models we use uh in our in our day-to-day -day activities no it's, it's very interesting you've described it really well in, in a way that uh, i find uh, useful myself so thank you for that now I think we're probably uh, getting to the end of uh, what I wanted to talk about, except for two things. Uh, uh, one of them is out of the modeling you do as the renewable penetration goes up in the United States, which I'm sure it, it does, 
you know, what happens to price? Uh, does it does it in in real terms very broadly? Yeah. So one of the great things about working renewable energy, of course, is the price is, is coming down to the point where it is you know, cost competitive. Again, we've got fantastic wind and solar resources in the U.S. So if you're a utility out there right now deciding what to, to build, for the most part, it is wind and solar just because it makes economic sense. When we do our simulations, uh, we typically see, depending on when you want to achieve a certain target, 2035, 2050, whatever, um, we often do kind of base case simulations, no carbon policy. And by 2050, we're at 60% renewables, 70% clean energy. That's with no policy. And so when you think about a modest carbon policy, you get to 80 90 percent clean energy with a very modest uh price impact i mean well below most estimates for social cost of carbon it is really that last 10 percent and, and that's a, a big focus of my uh, work now just because i think we've solved the 20 30 40 50 percent problems we're really focusing in you know more and more in the last 20 10 to 20 percent problems. so yeah the last 10 percent it's tough. It's expensive. The seasonal storage technologies aren't aren't quite there. Um, you know, again, sometimes I think if we become too fixated on how expensive the last 10 percent is, we forget about the fact that, well, OK, that does get us 90 percent decarbonization. And again, climate change being what it is, I don't think we can stop at 90 percent. Um, but, yeah, we can get to very, very high decarbonization with very minimum impact on costs. In fact, uh, I, I agree with that, and I think there's a ton of uh, near-term opportunity that, you know, in Australia, the current buzz is all around hydrogen, as it is in many areas of the world, both for meeting that last 10%, and because Australia is a big thermal energy exporter and we need a replacement product. Uh, uh, and, in fact, the, the hydrogen's variability of production may also enable a lot of demand response, which we haven't and won't talk, get time to talk about. I guess, you know, if if I compare the competitiveness of the United States then as it decarbonises in energy terms, just very briefly, would it be fair to say that it's going to remain as competitive or no no less competitive globally than it is today? I, I would think so, but I'm definitely kind of an amateur on those, uh, you know, those elements. All I can say is, again, when I look at our, our wind and solar resource maps and they are, they are world class. So in terms of electricity intensive uh, industries, whether it's you know, chemical production or aluminum, uh, the U.S. You know, should be highly cost competitive uh, in terms of you know, where the stuff is manufactured. That's you know, anybody's guess. But again, we have this tremendous advantage of, of great renewable energy resources. And so do we. And I guess finally, uh, I just might ask in terms of the storage futures study, uh, we've yet to get to see the full conclusions report that, that's going to be released this year, I think. <clears throat> but can you uh, give us a bit of a heads up as to what you think the uh, inferences we should take away from it are? I, I think it's a little bit... Um... You know, people people say this. Maybe it's almost cliched to say things like, you know, storage is going to be huge because, again, I've I've been hearing that for 10, 20 years and it hasn't happened. But I think now it is. I, I think there's really no doubt that with the prices heading in the direction, you can think about building almost no new uh, you know, combustion peaking resource in the U.S., 
just on cost alone. You know, for, again, for even forgetting about carbon policy, you know, the economic choice of utilities increasingly is going to be storage uh, for new peakers. That is a, a tremendous change uh, from from where we were even just a few years ago. So, the this the the fact is that storage is real. I, I don't think it's just uh, you know cliche to say that. I don't think that's you know, kind of just false advertising. I think that the technology has reached the point where we are going to see significant growth in energy storage. So that would be the main takeaway. There are a bunch of other more subtle ones, but uh, the big one is, yeah, it's, it's real and it's going to happen. Thanks very much, Paul uh, Denham, for, for t talking to Energy Insiders today. Uh, as I expected, it was an absolute pleasure. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks for having me. And that was Paul Denham from the National Renewable Energy Lab in the US. Now, David, yes, certainly, um, um, much the better questions. Um, two things sort of occurred to me from that. I mean, one, I'd like to ask you what your big take was. But secondly, it just, it just occurred to me then that um, why doesn't Australia have something similar to the National Renewable Energy Lab, or do we? Well, I don't know about something similar. There are groups that do modelling. I suppose the CSIRO uh, is the nearest thing uh, to NREL. I mean, Australia is still a small country in some ways, but we could do a lot. And we have the ANU that has done some great work and gets a mention, as you know, in the interview uh, for, for the pumped hydro modelling that they've done. Uh, um, there's arena. I don't know the exact answer to that, Giles, but uh, all I do know is that NREL does exist, and it's great that they do because it's, you know, like on batteries, right? If you go and look at this study, they've got a detailed projection of the battery uh, utility-scale battery cost broken down by component, uh, and also looking at the different durations uh, and explaining, for instance, uh, uh, why some parts the cell cost is going to go down a lot, but the inverter part's going to go down a bit, but the balance of system won't go down that much. And they end up showing that by 2024, batteries are going to be able to provide, be cost competitive with their estimate of US pumped hydro up to about eight or 10 hours. Now, I, you know. Well, that's really interesting because we've just had a big story this week and it was a well-read story because there's obviously a lot of interest in it about the New South Wales put out a bit of an expressions of interest. It's basically sort of putting a, a hook into the um, ocean or the water, the lake or whatever it is, um, to see what sort of interest is out there. Got 28 projects, 11 gigawatts of pumped hydro proposals. Now, look, we're not going to need anywhere near that much and so most of them are probably just sort of flying a kite. But it's interesting, even the ones that want to and are serious about getting built and looking here at, um, you know, Oven Mountain, um, um, and apologies to those people for getting the name wrong in the story, um, from Alinta, AGL's got um, something, Energy Australia's got something, there's a couple of other projects which are really interesting. If battery storage is cost competitive over 10 to 12 hours, that's going to make it interesting for them. Well, yes, and, you know, battery storage does this huge range of other functions that we can talk about and, and have talked about. But, Giles, I think it's a, it was a lengthy interview uh, and we've taken up a lot of our listeners' time. And as much as we love the story, I, I, perhaps we should let, uh, let people think about it. <laughs> okay, we shall do that. And I shall take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, um, Pylon and Evergen, for your ongoing support. Thank you very, very much. And um, thank you, David, for doing that interview with uh, Paul Denham from the NREL. Much appreciated. If you didn't catch last week's episode with Mike Cannon-Brooks, it was an absolute um, fantastic interview. Um, absolutely just great to hear his thoughts um, about many things. And uh, we'll be back again in a week's time with another episode. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, 
the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.